0: Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation from across the political spectrum, from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined by Damon Linker of the Week, Bill Galston of the Wall Street Journal and Brookings, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. And we are delighted to welcome this week our special guest, A.B. Stoddard, Senior Editor at Real Clear Politics and columnist. Welcome, one and all. Thanks, Mona. So um, we will begin with uh, the coronavirus and the reactions uh uh, by the federal government um, this week uh, a very eventful week the president um began what some people had predicted which is that he is now starting to question the death totals that are put out by of course the government that he supposedly heads um he's saying he's wondering about the accuracy of the death totals um he also, on Tuesday, said that he would disband the coronavirus task force, and then on Wednesday said no, he wouldn't. Um, so, let's start with you, A.B. Um, there is still no plan. Um, there is a scattershot approach to reopening, and there are protests breaking out in various state capitals around the country by gun-toting uh people who object to
1: lockdown orders. Where are we? Well, Mona, thank you for having me. And thank you so much for uh, starting out by saying there is no plan. I think it's always important to remind people that we are um, heading into uh, May, uh, well into the month um, after we had our first known case on January 20th, without a plan to control the spread of the virus. And I think it's really important for Americans to understand that. Uh, As we head back into the reopen debate, uh, which I think we're going to head into and revisit many times because it's staggered, it's partial, it's uh, incoherent, and we will have more outbreaks and mini epidemics in different places that will cause us to then retreat and have this conversation again. But it's clear that the president is unwilling to be truthful with us about the hard road ahead what a national plan uh, is required to make testing work at the level we need to test contact tracing and subsequent isolation all of which you've discussed uh, and written about from the harvard study and and all the experts tell us we must do to control this he won't put in the work that it takes to do that he wants to farm this out to the states so it can be a patchwork where he cheers on governors who are ignoring his own White House guidelines and then later blames the states that don't fare well. He wants to scapegoat other governors and not lead on this issue, again, to put in the effort. And then he's also relying on deception. So laziness and deception have gotten Donald Trump to the White House. Uh, it, it's not something he's going to relinquish now. Uh, it, it's really the way that he he governs and 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 um, conducts himself in everything and he's not willing to create a national plan to control this in the way that other countries have been able to Um, and so we're going to have this conversation over and over again um, again about when um, when this place should do that all the while knowing that if you're a small business owner do you take out a new lease do you feel confident that you can hire new staff and give them benefits I don't think so. Do you get my mother out of her house at age 78 with a, comp- a non-smoker with a lung condition and tell her pre-vaccine to go out into the economy? No way uh, can she be convinced. So it's it's really, really um, going to be um, something I unfortunately think that we're going to continue to revisit and revisit um, for the weeks and months to come.
0: Well said. Um Damon, other countries um, that uh, had their first cases around the same time that we did um, are seeing steep declines in their rates of infection. The only countries where the rates of infection are not dropping rapidly uh, and have plateaued are the UK, Sweden, which has done nothing. Sweden is, is um, doing a, a different strategy of
2: herd immunity,
0: and the US. Uh,
2: so, yeah, that's right and it's it's distressing. I mean, the New York Times just today on uh Thursday the 7th had a, a a long piece about how Germany is is effectively starting to really open up not just in the kind of patchwork haphazard way that we apparently are starting to. They they are going to allow schools to begin opening by the end of May. Um, but they're doing it through a rigorous uh testing, tracking, and tracing program uh that is being uh, orchestrated from the top from the Miracle government. And uh and it appears to be working. Their their uh infection rate, the R value is is below one, about 0.7, which works out to be roughly two people infected for every three who are already contagious. Which is a manageable level where, if you are testing and tracking people, you can pick up on spikes where things, where it starts to rise. And then you, you put some more lockdown measures in place in that area for a while. And then you kind of try to manage it as long as people are wearing masks and engaging in social distancing, which they're going to do as well. Uh, You've seen uh, variations on this kind of an approach in Singapore and Taiwan and South Korea. And these are countries that are doing quite well in combating and staying on top of the virus, but not here. And it's sort of, uh, you know, we we don't know how exactly it's going to go. I suspect it will be a mix of the best and worst of federalism. I mean, I've been pretty happy with my own governor, Governor Wolf in, in Pennsylvania, who appears to be trying to set up, at the state level, something approaching Germany's uh, uh, strategy with a tracking, tracing, and testing program. Uh, We begin tomorrow with um, placing 24 counties in the center, the central and western counties uh, in Pennsylvania that haven't had that bad of an outbreak. They become yellow Whereas the rest of the state remains in red. So they will be allowed to uh, do a little bit of opening. Uh, there's some uh, loosening of restrictions on businesses, and uh, they will be doing testing and tracing. So maybe in some states it will work out. But, uh, you know, we also have the economic consequences of the fact that. You know, it's the biggest cities that will be the last to open, and that's where the the bulk of economic activity usually takes place. So we shall see. But it doesn't look great right now.
0: Linda, um, on March 30th, uh, there there were about 117,000 tests performed nationwide. Uh, A month later, on April 30th, there were only 229,000, a little over double, Whereas most of the experts that you talk to say that we need anywhere from you know 800,000 tests a day to 5 million tests a day in order to safely and smartly begin to reopen the economy. Um, and yet it seems, doesn't it, that this president is utterly, utterly incapable of Looking forward, of planning, of of a strategic approach, he his preferred weapon for anything is the blunderbuss. You know, let's cut off immigration, let's stop travel from China or Europe. And by the way, those things were okay—not the immigration part, but the stopping travel part that was fine. Except that it was not followed by anything. With the time right. he bought, he didn't—he hasn't done a thing except That's for right. you know promote quack cures and enrich his son-in-law
3: well you know it's very interesting uh today we learned that one of the valets who interacts with the first family and i believe although they're being a little careful about the information they give out uh interacts uh in a very close way with the president has now tested positive and he had contact with the president on wednesday of course what did the president do when he learned this immediately got tested. tested, Right. He immediately (laughs) got tested. And I think he got tested twice in one day. Um, And he gets tested, of course, every day. So, you know, this is what is absolutely maddening, is the sheer and utter narcissistic hypocrisy where you know he doesn't care if other people get tested, the people who have to go into the meat plants, for example, he uses the Defense Production Act to insist that meat uh, pla- uh, plants open up and keep operating and keep producing meat, so that he can have his fat hamburgers every night, um, and yet. He won't uh, won't ensure that there be any kind of a systematic plan, and for the federal government to take over the responsibility. To have FEMA or some other federal agency be in charge of number one, making sure that we have enough tests, that we have all of the reagents, the vials, and the and the cotton uh, swabs that we need uh, to make those tests. To make sure that the companies who process the uh, the tests, in fact, have the sufficient number of personnel to keep operating and perhaps go to a 24-7 kind of schedule so that they're actually uh, processing those tests very, very quickly. None of that is he willing to do. So it's going to be very interesting to see what happens if anyone close to the president or the president himself becomes ill, because I think that will change things uh, rather dramatically. You know, I don't, no one wishes a terrible disease on anyone, but it seems that the only way this president ever understands anything is if it affects him personally or someone very close to him in his immediate family.
0: Um, Bill, these you know americans of course are within their rights to protest they are fully within their rights to be stupid and gather in in closely packed you know assemblages um to to protest their governments um but but this business of bringing weapons um i i was quite uh very much in found myself very much in agreement with a piece by michelle norris in today's, I think it was New York Times, might have been the Post, um, but where she was talking about, you know, normalizing this, um, the, you know, the bringing of guns to political protests and how dangerous that is, and um, and really how um, how uh, corrupting it is of our civic life. Can you can you address that? On some level, Lona,
4: what is there to say? Right. This is the this is the inevitable outcome of policies that have been pursued at the state level in many states for decades, uh, and political styles that have been fostered across the country. The two have come together in these armed populist protests, claiming to represent the majority, the real people when in fact they are an unrepresentative minority in the states where these protests are taking place uh and uh, we we sow what we reap if we have permi- permissive permissive firearms laws and with open carry laws in public places including state capitals this outcome is inevitable so you know, I'm surprised that anybody is surprised, frankly. <laughs> uh and yeah. uh, you know, it and uh many governors on the receiving end of this, I think, have have had the guts and the smarts to push back hard. Uh but we're gonna be we're gonna be stuck with this. And you know, particularly with the president consciously or unconsciously echoing his you know, famous, both sides have really fine people uh, sentiments uh, expressed during Charlottesville. So there's nothing to stop this, everything to encourage it. And uh, we're going to get it as far as the eye can see. I can hold out no hope for change.
0: A.B., this is, um, you know, I I personally find these images deeply disturbing. Um, It reminds me of what drove me into the arms of conservatism when I was a youngster, really, which was seeing images of the Black Panthers, you know, bedecked in weaponry and so forth and being very repelled by, by that. Um, I, But I, but just to be crassly political about this for a second, um, it strikes me and I'm wondering what you think uh, that these images of, of, gun-toting, you know, white good old boys are, go- are just the sort of thing to send suburban women voters uh, into the arms of the Democratic Party. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I found them just uh, incredibly upsetting. And it's we, we have to make the point that, that many Democrats made, which is, what if these people were Muslim or Black with yeah. their weapons at the Michigan Statehouse? Uh, getting a close up in people's faces without masks on, and screaming and intimidating them, and it's fascinating to me that Sean Hannity now is coming out against this type of a protest because he fears for the protection and the security of the police, and he thinks it undermines and is disrespectful to law enforcement. Um, and it, it, I wonder if that will have an effect. On them, um, puts the president in a weird place because he likes to, you know, laud the protesters and tell us that they're very fine people. Um, but it is, uh, I think it is, a ch- those are chilling images. I think you're right that they're the kind of thing that um, in, in the death by a thousand cuts uh, uh, continue to energize uh, formerly Republican women, suburban women uh, into the democratic uh, voting base uh, at least for these few elections during Trump. And, and um, I, like I said, I'll, I'd be interested to see what uh, the chatter on the right, because I think Fox and Friends followed what Hannity said, if, I, if I'm if i right, um, that people need to watch out. Um, uh, these police are trying to do the right thing. And, and, and they have to enforce these restrictions and um, guard, you know, government officials and everything. So it, it'll be interesting to see uh, how much of that continues. But it's, it is. Um, it's, it's really it's, it's the perfect example, Mona, of exactly the kind of thing that President Trump should step in um, to the void and say, we all understand how frustrating this is for people. They don't want to stay home. They want to be heard in this debate, but you don't need to bring your gun to be heard in the debate.
3: But, but of course, he did exactly the opposite, right? I mean, you know, A.B., he said, you know, they're trying to take away your Second Amendment rights. And of course he did. And, and what it looks like is incitement to insurrection. I mean, that's what it looks like. I'm sorry. These people, to me, look like um, the kind of people I just watched, as a lot of people are on Netflix now, uh, the the mini series Waco, which was altogether too friendly to uh, the Branch Davidians, I thought. But nonetheless, you you know you get this insight into some of these communities with their guns and you know their sense that the government is evil. And then of course, if the government does anything like tries to clamp down on um, your you know freedom to do whatever it is you want to do, uh, these are the kind of people they get riled up by that and essentially encouraging them to go to state capitals. And by saying, you know, they're trying to take away your Second Amendment rights, encouraging them to bring their weapons uh, is just the most irresponsible thing I can imagine.
0: Uh, Okay. AB, since we have you, I, I would just ask you to spend a couple minutes describing Um, Another, another aspect of what's happening here. I mean, people think that um, nothing is happening in Washington, but uh, that's not true. Um, We are busy while the country is falling apart due to a coronavirus. We are also busy undermining the rule of law and the Constitution. So um, can you talk a little bit about the assaults
1: on the inspectors general? Yeah, this has been um, a perfect example, almost so overt, you can't believe the administration would do it, of the kinds of damage, the degradation to the rule of law, undermining of the checks and balances that the administration could have the cover and the drama of a pandemic uh, to, to hide beneath and, and, and to execute uh, subtly <laughs> if they wanted to. Uh, very effectively over months and months, all the way to the election. So you see um, him, he started at the beginning of this on sort of a post impeachment retaliation purge where people at all associated with his impeachment, uh, like Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vinman of the national security council got fired and several others. And um, he uh, fired Michael Atkinson, the intelligence community inspector general, who, of course, transmitted the whistleblower's complaint on the Ukraine matter to Congress. And he fired him basically in, in open retaliation concerning the senators and the Republican Party and, and, and House members, but not um, so much that they got loud about it. Then I mean, we went heavy into this pandemic Emergency and as Congress uh, passed uh, the the largest ever rescue package in the history of the United States and sent it off rapidly, you know, and many of us were concerned about how uh, shrewdly um, these dollars are are being allocated because it's the, the legislation is arrived at so quickly and sent out the door in such large numbers and with such speed. Uh, that we know in hindsight we will know that mistakes were made. but then in the alloc- in, in the allotment of, the, of these loans and and the, the PPP program and small business association loans and everything, there's been an incredible amount of freedom uh, given to the Treasury and there's a big concern about oversight. This was happening during the debate uh, uh, in the negotiation of the bill. All of a sudden, you know, a whole structure is put in place, a Congressional Oversight Commission, this committee of, of inspectors general uh, led by, and I won't go into acronyms and everything, but it's just a big committee of inspectors general across the government, which is headed by one chief inspector general. And the man who was chosen, Glenn Fine, at the time was the acting, I mean, sorry, was the inspector general of the Pentagon. He, within days, is relieved by Trump. Um, of his most important task uh, of leading this effort at oversight and accountability, stopping waste, fraud, and abuse uh, in in all the uh, trillions that the Congress has passed and is floating around the Federal Reserve and Treasury. Uh, when Trump had already previewed this <laughs> um, uh, resistance to oversight before the bill was passed by saying, "I'll do the oversight," so he fires yep. one Fine. It prompts it it's so alarming. In both parties, um, it prompts a rebuke from James Mattis, who, of course, we know never says anything about anything. Uh, And uh, then the letters begin from Republicans in the Senate who are concerned about inspectors general. So, they have sent letters. Chuck Grassley, who we know has, you know, made this the mark of his career, to protect the rights of whistleblowers and the independence of inspectors general. Uh, and they have sent uh, senators Portman and senators Lankford and Grassley and Collins and and uh, Romney have been the Republicans on this effort. Sending letters encouraging and suggesting to the president that the enemy not be inspectors general who should remain independent and free of partisan consideration, but wasteful spending should be the enemy of the government. <laughs> and the uh, response from the administration has been a big, um, who cares? Uh, there's no no letter being answered. Um, no, uh, nothing. And um, he has replaced Glenn Fine with a partisan uh, pick Brian Miller, who helped shepherd him through uh, impeachment, and the, he's under consideration by the Senate now. and And it's 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 just along with what we saw this week, where, when the president said, "Everyone on the House side are Trump haters. We can't let Fauci go and testify on a pandemic in front of the House, which is mandated by the Constitution at oversight of the executive branch." Um, and we heard nothing from Republicans about this in Congress, in the separate and co-equal branch. Um, so have they only sent letters on their concerns. And they are alarmed about the um, assault on inspectors general, and they refuse to sit down and talk to the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or or anyone about um, how they intend to push back and stop this assault. Yeah, Uh,
0: it's, um, you know, these, this is, this is a, a deep rot. I'm sorry to say that, um, unless it's reversed is, is very dangerous for, for our system. Uh, it does rely on, on these kinds of checks and on, on certain level of integrity so that members of, the Republican party are expected to be willing to push back against abuses, even against the president of their own party and similar for Democrats. But if it doesn't happen, um, it's very, very, very worrying. Okay. Let us, um, let us move now to, um, the political race, which, um, which continues, um, Damon, uh, Biden is, uh, continuing to inch up in the polls despite the Tara Reid, um, accusations, which got a lot more discussion in the past week. We, we went into a deep dive about it last week, but, uh, since then she has declined to appear on a show and has, um, anyway, there's been a lot more that's happened.
2: Right. Um, I mean, I, in the end, I don't think the, the basic lay of the land has changed very much from our discussion last week. Her, her accusation remains, Uh, as a journalist might say, somewhat undersourced. Uh, Her reliability remains uh, not entirely the strongest one might want in making such an accusation. Um, And I think Biden has handled it okay. He appeared on Morning Joe and had what I thought was a somewhat shaky performance there talking about it uh but i think got through do you think he was
0: could i interrupt for one second just to ask you i thought it was shaky too but do you think that he had been overly warned that he couldn't say anything at all that could be possibly interpreted as casting aspersions on the accuser so all he would say is it didn't happen i mean he 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 was weirdly um unwilling to elaborate i thought
2: well, the internal politics of the Democratic Party on these kinds of issues as is, as I think you know, very complicated. And you see that now also in news this morning. I saw Biden has come out and said that uh, as background, you know, Betty DeVos, the uh, Secretary of Education, has been pushing back on second term Obama uh, regulations about enforcement of Title IX on college campuses and basically not allowing... Uh, male accused college students of having full due process rights and defending themselves against accusations of assault, and uh, Biden was a big champion of this when he was the vice president, and he's of of course taking a very different position about himself, saying in effect, "Well, no, but I'm innocent. Uh, I, I didn't do what I was accused of doing," which a lot of people are saying is actually a, a more reasonable stance to take and he's come out this morning and said actually when I'm back in office as president I'm going to roll back those Betty Divorce regulations and we're going to go right back to the way it was under Obama which it, which just shows i think what might have been going on in some of his prep before going on morning joe last week that that he simultaneously has to defend himself strongly while not saying anything that be could be construed as dismissive of the accuser, which is a, a difficult, a difficult needle to thread, if if you can imagine, uh, it's like saying uh, you know you you have to uh, give praise for the person who you think is lying about you. So. Um, so, I, I mean, I'm I'm cheered that the polling is looking good for Biden. Uh, I think that 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 isn't su- that surprising given the background of the virus and Trump's completely inept. Uh, handling of it, uh, along with all of the bad economic news. Uh, I mean, Trump is heading into reelection with a headwind greater than probably any president since Herbert Hoover. So, uh, it's, it's gonna be quite something. And I'm pleased that, that, uh, Joe seems to be, you know, holding steady. Uh, We can talk maybe later a little bit about uh, Justin Amash, who has me a little nervous uh, on a different front, but on the whole, I thought it was a uh, mildly positive week for for Biden.
0: Um, Bill, uh, Damon mentioned 1932. Um, You know, they didn't have polling then the way we have it now, Um, but... um, but, you know, considering the complete face plant that Trump has managed uh, over this virus and considering the state of the economy, don't you find it just gobsmacking that he remains at even where he is, 43% popularity or something like that? And, and, and then talk about the Senate, if you would. Is that in play? Uh, well, first of all, You know, I think I got
4: gobsmacked for life in November of 2016. And since then, absolutely nothing has surprised me. Uh, I will say this uh, I've been doing a deep dive into the coalition that elected Trump in 2016. And I've looked for signs that elements of that coalition are eroding. And I've found two. Uh, First of all, Uh, And this has been pretty well discussed, though I think its significance has been underplayed. Seniors, people over the age of 65, gave Donald Trump a substantial margin in 2016. And now in that same group, Biden leads Trump by an even larger margin. And that could be a really big deal because seniors are the cohort most likely to vote. They voted at the rate of 71% in 2016. And so if if you know if, if substantial numbers of seniors changed their minds, that by itself could make the difference in the states that were most closely contested uh, in, in 2016. The other story that hasn't been told quite as much is the fact that white working class women are much less staunchly in his camp uh, than white working class men are and white working class women are less behind him as a group than they were in 2016. Uh, And given the fact that opinion has hardened against the president among college educated white voters, he needs to run up the score among uh, whites without a college education in 2020. And if women are beginning to defect, it's going to be much harder for him to do that. So structurally speaking, I believe that he's in a weaker position than he was four years ago. And that may account for the difference between the 46% he got back then and the fact that he's only registering around 43 or 40, 43 and a, half, and a half in job approval and also in head to heads against Biden so this election is not over by a long shot but i can't see any signs that the tectonics are moving in the president's direction
0: so linda um a number of senate races have now been moved from lean Republican to likely Republican or, or possibly Republican or toss up. Um, and, um, there's, there's talk that, uh, that if Biden were to win this race, he would also be bringing in a democratic Senate. Is that your sense? that is my
3: sense and and i think um i'm sure others on on the the uh, podcast uh, may not be in quite the same position as you and i are uh mona because we are conservatives and we don't agree with joe biden on a lot of policy i mean i was struck as uh, damon was talking about the title IX wrecks oh, yeah. which were re- yeah you know which were really about ensuring that evidence have to be produced uh, when someone makes a, a charge against sexual assault uh, of sexual assault and that you give a certain amount of due process before you kick a student out uh, of, of school and, and essentially change their uh, lives. So, you know, th- there are going to be things that happen when uh, and if Joe Biden is elected that conservatives like you and I will not approve. Uh, there are many, many policies with which we are going to disagree. But I think, um, and, and certainly if he gets control of the Senate as well as the House, it will make it much easier uh, for him to do kind of sweeping Policy changes, which I will not approve of. And I assume many that you will not approve of. So, you know, there's there's part of me that says, well, yeah, let's, you know, clean out the whole bunch and I'm sick of them and they have no guts and they never stand up to this fool and uh, they behave very badly over the last uh, almost four years. Uh, But on the other hand, I know that if Biden comes in in a kind of uh, huge tidal wave in which he makes a, uh, you know, a sweep of the Senate and he brings in an even larger majority in the House, it's going to be a kind of whiplash in terms of policy. And not all of that is going to be to my liking. On the other hand, I think that if that were to happen, uh, and if the Republican Party could ever redeem itself, which is not clear to me, it can right now, um, that that might be in a, another one term presidency. I guess that would be my uh, my optimal choice, because I think another term of Trump is so damaging and dangerous to democracy itself.
0: So, Linda, one other thing that um, was in the news this week was um, that Bill Barr apparently made a presentation at the uh, White House to um, the president, urging him not to uh, join this lawsuit, uh, not to pursue this lawsuit, uh, trying to invalidate the um, Affordable Care Act. And, yeah, it's um, just amazing. <laughs> it's so, so so. I mean, you know, that is another thing that could have a huge effect on the election. That was oh what Barr my was goodness. saying. I mean, yeah. Oh my goodness. That's Eddie, can you imagine
3: the ads? Can you imagine oh the ads? Gosh. You know, you remember the uh, the ads of of uh, Paul Ryan, you know, shoving gravel yeah. off the cliff. Okay. Well, can you imagine the ads the Democrats could do with people Ugh. being deprived of their health insurance uh, in the middle of the biggest pandemic, you know, in a hundred years? I mean, mm-hmm. and, you know, it's just, it, it is sort of amazing to me my how goodness. tone deaf they are, how little empathy they have have for ordinary people, for the people who, you know, they want those people in the meat plants. They want those uh, grocery clerks uh, checking out their, you know, Whole Foods orders that can be delivered safely to their homes. Uh, They want the guys driving the trucks to be able to do that. They want all of those people out there working. Uh, But no, they don't need health insurance. (laughs) What do they need health insurance
2: for? You know,
0: (sighs) it's
3: just, it's amazing.
0: All it's, right.
2: It's Damon. A, it's, a, it's a workers' party now. Yeah. yeah exactly.
0: <laughs> well, Damon, since you volunteered earlier to talk about Justin Amash, I'd like to hear you on this topic. Um, there was a mammoth poll this week um, showing that uh, Amash would take three points from Biden, but only one from Trump if it
2: were a three way race. Right. And uh, with the gap the way it is now, that would still allow Biden to win by a good margin of, I think, seven points. So at the moment, that wouldn't be fatal. But it makes me nervous. It is going to tighten up. I agree with Bill that uh you know Trump is going to have a lot of trouble but that doesn't mean it's wrapped up so i i really i i'm uh, i don't know if you want to say it means i'm an institutionalist or more conservative on this topic i whatever you want to call it i really am sort of dispositionally hostile to third party bids in general elections for the presidency, because it never, ever works. It's it's a vanity exercise for the candidate. Even Ross Perot, who managed the astonishing feat of winning 18.9% of the vote in 1992, Won exactly zero electoral votes, which means he effectively got zero. He didn't get anywhere close to, to becoming president or even, even winning one state. So it, it, I mean, you can go back to George Wallace, who actually won five states, but that's because he was a regional candidate and Justin Amash isn't. So do I like Justin Amash? Yeah, he seems like a decent guy. His policies on almost everything, I think, are preferable to Trump's. Uh, If he could be swapped in to be the Republican nominee, I would... Breathe a massive sigh of relief, but that <laughs> you're is you're getting not- into
0: fantasies. Come on now, calm I down. No, there, I just Cameron. want to
2: make clear that I, it's not that I hold any grudge against this guy. Mm. I think, in, in objective terms, he is in every way preferable to Trump. However, he would not be the Republican nominee. He would be a third party, and we can't begin to game out how that's going to play out in all fifty states. Uh, when it tightens up. And the idea that Biden could lose because Hamash decided he wanted to give this a shot just makes me want to ask him, what exactly are you trying to achieve here? And again, my my instincts usually tell me that it's about self-promotion.
4: May I take the other side on this one just for a minute? Sure, go. Uh, uh, I agree with Damon about this particular case. But as a general proposition, uh, I think there is a case to be made for third-party candidacies. Perhaps I'm just saying this in self-defense because my very first venture into national politics was in 1980 as John Anderson's speechwriter. Uh, I could, I think, there's a statute of limitations that run, that's run, so I can now admit that. Uh, <laughs> but you know, but I can, I can tell you that Perot's candidacy in 1992 had an important influence on the Clinton administration, and I think it was a salutary influence. He put the issue of the budget deficit on the table in a very unmistakable way, Uh, and he strengthened the forces uh, inside the Democratic Party and and the new Clinton administration who were uncomfortable with the idea that uh, we could buy our way out of the recession and slow recovery uh, that the the Bush 41 administration had bequeathed to us. And instead, as you'll recall, uh, we pursued the path of fiscal restraint, uh, which led to the most fiscally responsible and economically successful decade uh, that the United States has seen in a long time. Uh, and I could go back to the 1920s where the, the La Follette movement uh, laid the basis for what became the New Deal. Uh, um, so I'm, yeah. I'm unwilling to dismiss third party candidacies in a blanket way because I think they do have the effect or can have the effect of changing the issues terrain of American politics
2: for the major parties. Yeah, I guess. I guess I might have one quick uh, rejoinder to that. I mean, obviously Bill was was actually there in the Clinton White House, so it's I'm a fool to even question that reading of it, but I will be a fool. Uh, I do, from my reading of, of the history as I lived it, um, the fiscal restraint became the really big issue only after uh, the 1994 midterm wipeout that led Clinton to, to say, holy crap, uh, we got to work with these Republicans. And the only way to reach a deal is to try to get smaller uh, kind of social program initiatives passed and to really show that we care about the deficit and cutting spending. Okay, the of the, I- the era of big government is over, is in 1995 at the State of the Union and so forth. I'm afraid I'm going to have to pull rank on you on this one. Well, again, I I, I know you can.
4: (laughs) I wasn't, you know, I was indeed in the White House, indeed on on the second floor of the West Wing, and I saw this play out close up. There was the famous Battle of the Bobs between Bob Ruman and Bob Reich, uh, and there were different approaches to the first Clinton budget associated with those two positions. and. it was not a trivial decision the first clinton budget you'd had you'd had 12 years of republican presidents and you had a bunch of democratic interest groups who for understandable reasons thought that the spigots were about about to be turned back on and they weren't and i still have the scars on my back i was number 2 on the domestic policy council i had to go around to all those groups and brief them right before the Clinton budget was released. And the first response was incredulity. The second was fury. Uh, so I, I reject the proposition that this was an emphasis that began uh, after, after the 1994 wipeout. It's an emphasis that continued
2: after that, but it didn't start with that. I, it, I love it wasn't your, the election that triggered it. I love the description of the scene. It's like something out of the West Wing.
4: <laughs> and, uh, it no, was literally in the round. West Wing.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Look, look.
4: I, I'm, I'm not making this up. I'm really not. That's not my style. No, no, we know uh, I know. We I know don't that. think
2: you are. You're, you're the real life Sam Seaborn. So,
0: <laughs> all right. I, I want to bring AB in here and ask. Um, you know the, the the Trump administration, the Trump campaign. I guess um, to the degree that they have a plan for his uh, re-election strategy that is not, you know, hydroxychloroquine or uh, cor- <laughs> Clorox enemas, um, is um, <laughs> something along the lines of, um, of, you know, presenting this as a Chinese act, of aggression and something that requires a national mobilization against china and that they will paint biden as being weak on china and how do you think that's going to go
1: well i'm sure you all read the wall street journal piece uh from from yesterday about uh the relationship with china uh you know how it's been changed by the pandemic and What I think is so fascinating is that uh, we're in a situation here where um, Bob Lighthizer uh, is going to be talking to a top Chinese official in the coming days about the phase one China deal that President Trump touts as so meaningful and substantive, um, which Republicans behind the scenes complain has no enforcement mechanisms and no teeth. Um, and that uh, there is now no hope of a phase two anyway. Um, And he refuses in his town hall with Fox on Sunday night and in interviews and and, um, Oval Office chat now that he he forces governors to come to Washington and sit in the Oval Office with him um, because he can't do briefings anymore at the podium. Um, In these discussions, he always says he's really mad at China, but he refuses to you know, criticize uh, President Xi directly and really come up with a kind of sanction or punishment. Uh, he says that we're investigating it. Well, we know um, that our intelligence has told us that nothing was man-made and released intentionally to create a scourge that would ravage China and then eventually really hurt us. Um, we know that it was either released accidentally um, from a lab where they were studying novel coronaviruses which they should um as the site of many previous outbreaks of respiratory illnesses or it you know was transmitted in a meat market or whatever um i think that we're going to see this line where the trump administration and the trump campaign is eager to press president trump into being tough on china and he refuses uh it's a dance he's always tried to do where He wants to keep a relationship going with President Xi uh, for future trade deals or future business arrangements and trademarks after he leaves office or whatever his interest is, because he has many (laughs) of them with Beijing. So does his daughter. Um, And, you know, we knew back in in January and early February that the, the administration, you know, they could have had President Trump get on the phone with President Xi and say, you're not allowing our CDC assets to obtain samples of this virus, and I'm gonna insist that you do. He didn't do that. He told us repeatedly that they were being transparent and he thanked President Xi for his um, you know, professional management of the coronavirus outbreak and all his transparency. And he refused to do just what his campaign and his administration wanted. So here we are in mid-May soon with some investigation they keep telling us is really gonna to be tough and I don't actually think we're going to see a response, a substantive response to the Chinese. I think he wants more trade deals. He'll fantasize that he'll get them. They've made promises of ag purchases he needs them to you know, to complete. And I think he's going to keep doing all his talk and doing ads about how Biden was a wimp on China when we know he covered up their cover up. And I just I just don't know that. it works i I understand why senate republicans are dying to change the subject and use it as a constant um batting ram but it's really hard when president trump won't play ball and i think as the months wear on before november i don't think he's going to take decisive action against the chinese
0: you know previous National leaders, when it came to dealing with repressive countries and repressive governments around the world, have always been at pains to make clear that we in the United States have no argument with the people of, say, Iran or the people of the old USSR, only with its leadership, right? Whereas with Trump, it's exactly the other way. He says he has a real problem with China, but G is fantastic. He's doing a wonderful job, very professional. He's my good friend. (sighs) <sighs> anyway. <laughs> All right. Now, speaking of the wider world, um, this this virus um, will present uh, real challenges uh, and, and it may aggravate certain tendencies that were already in evidence. Um, freedom House, for example, which tracks freedom around the world, reported last month in March that for the 14th consecutive year, rights and liberties have declined worldwide. Um, and we've seen, um, that in response to the coronavirus, a number of countries, um, have, uh, have increased their authoritarianism. Um, Damon talked a few podcasts ago about what was happening in Hungary. Um, I note that, uh, uh, I'll toss this to you, Linda. Um, in the Philippines uh, this week, they closed the largest independent and the only remaining independent television network. Um, and uh, you know, there they, it, it seems that this is being used um, as a uh, fig leaf to, you know, to to repress more and more people around the globe.
3: Well, that's not at all surprising. Um, you would expect that. Um, that, that would happen I guess what is surprising is that not each and every authoritarian government has done that um, you know you look at places like uh, Brazil uh, you look at um, the Philippines uh, and and you do see this kind of uh, use of, of their sort of you know state power uh, not just to try to clamp down and keep a keep people indoors, which in some places they're not even doing that, but they are clamping down on, um, the, you know, kind of public organs that could inform the public of what's going on like newspapers and, and, uh, whatever voices there are that constitute anything even resembling an independent press. And, and that's to be expected, um, among authoritarian regimes. Um, and, you know, I think that you, you, you're absolutely right when you talk about, um, the president and China, uh, it's not, you know, we don't have, um, as clear a picture of what's going on in China because some areas are still less accessible, uh, than they were, but you know, it's happening in in a different way here. We have the government telling us one thing in terms of, you know, the status. Um, and we, thankfully we do have independent press telling us the truth um uh, but for the people who support trump um you know they get their information from entirely different sources i have a friend this week um who's very much on the right and she's a little older and she sent me this unbelievable story about how doctor fauci is responsible for the you know tens of thousands of deaths because he knew that hydroxychloroquine was a miracle drug and he knew this back in the 1990s and he's prevented us all from getting it i mean it was it made no sense on any uh, level and yet that's what people are believing. So it doesn't just take an authoritarian government to uh mislead people. You can have even in an open democratic society, if you have people who are more like cult followers, uh they're gonna end up uh taking their information from the wrong sources as well.
4: I was about to say that uh uh that the situation is even worse than your Freedom House lead. Uh made it out to be because just yesterday, Freedom House came out with a new report uh, declaring that Hungary is no longer a democracy, full stop. Uh, And so we now have a member of the European Union in the heart of Europe that has turned its back on democracy. Uh, The Freedom House report published yesterday goes on to point out that Poland is on the verge of going down The same path. Uh, In principle, uh, the European Union is supposed to be a league of democracies. That's that's its founding raison d'etre. And in the the late 80s and through much of the 90s, its gravitational force uh, was a source of of democratic transition. Uh, But now nations are deserting this founding principle. And the EU is basically doing nothing to stop them, or not very much. Uh, and this is this is a real moment of decision uh, for a very important center of world democracy. You know, is it going to be a league of democracies, or, or in the name of God knows what else, is it going to fail to stand up for its own principles? So uh, these these are important months just ahead.
0: Um, the the. Um Freedom House report also mentioned Serbia and Montenegro also heading in a very bad direction vis-a-vis human rights and liberties. Um, Damon, I know you're not a fan of broad U.S. Uh, military presence <clears throat> around the globe, um, but what about um, what about U.S. leadership as a, as a leader of the democratic ethos? Um, uh, just a would mention that uh, another country that we don't pay that much attention to these days with all of the emphasis on China. But um, there have been stories, uh, you know, really interesting coming out of Russia. Russia seemed for a while was immune to this, w- was not afflicted with this virus. Of course, who knows whether that was, you know, just disinformation or whatever. But now in the last few weeks, three Russian doctors who raised alarms about the virus or about their lack of preparation to deal with the virus have fallen out of windows. Um, coincidence, <laughs> I'm sure.
2: Um, it happens. You know. Yeah. Uh,
0: it's like all those Putin critics who managed to shoot themselves in the back of the head. Um, yeah. But, um, but you know, the the part of, part of uh, it seems to me, part of our role in the world is... Which we have now, where we seem to be turning our backs on, is that we at least spoke for freedom, um, and we don't play that role anymore. Is that is that not is it important or not important
2: that we do? Well, that? Well, I mean, I think rhetorically, I'm I'm certainly in favor if we have a, a president capable of it and so inclined. Of course, if if a bad event happens, and I would certainly be in favor of an American president calling out what's happening in Hungary. And I said, I even more so uh, hope that the EU steps up and does something because there, it's not just a question of, of kind of making a moral stance uh, in the abstract. It, it, as Bill was indicating the EU is an actual sort of political community, kind of halfway between a nation and uh, a trade uh, partnership. So They uh, The the EU has enormous leverage economically over Hungary. Hungary needs the money that it gets from the EU. And if the EU actually had the the modest amount of guts to say you either uh, reverse uh, some of these recent moves or we're going to cut you off, you're out. Uh, I think Orban would probably have to back down because I don't, I mean, I don't know enough about the finances of Hungary to know if they could really survive without that, uh, without that help with budgeting. But uh, I, I think he would be in a really tough spot. So uh, it is. And uh,
0: he couldn't rely on his pal Putin either because with uh, oil prices being what they are. Um, right. That's that's not going to be a source of sucker.
2: Right, exactly. And so, uh, I mean, I don't know how much I have to say about it, other than if Bill hadn't brought it up, I would have mentioned the, the Freedom House report that came out yesterday as well, and, and it, that it's very distressing. And it was also distressing that when it came out, I sort of uh, poked some of the uh, conservative bears I argue with on Twitter about it and uh, ended up spending about an hour of my afternoon arguing, trying to say, hey, look, see, it is bad. And the response was, eh, what's the big deal? So uh, there we are.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, Yeah. Those people who call themselves conservatives and can look with equanimity on what is happening in Hungary are really not my idea of a conservative whatsoever. Um, I'm sure Linda would agree. All right. um, Let us move now to the um, things we want to draw attention to segment, our last segment. Linda, what do you have for us
3: Well, here's uh, something I also think you'll agree with me on. Our good friend David French, uh, late of National Review and now of the Dispatch, uh, wrote, I thought, a very important piece uh, today. Uh, it's entitled A Vigilante Killing in Georgia. That and was going to be mine, too. Oh, well, you know, we, have, oh, we, well. share, we share one brain, Mona. Let's just, yeah. you know, let's just admit it. Uh, and it, it was uh, this points to this really unbelievable vigilante killing of this uh, young black man, Ahmed Arbery, uh, in Georgia. He was out for a run. Uh, apparently, it was a neighborhood he often ran in. Uh, two guys uh, apparently saw him looking in the window of a house that was under construction, didn't do anything apparently except, you know, stare into the window, um, and then took off back on, on his run. And they decided that uh, they should arm themselves uh, to the hilt with a shotgun and a three fifty Uh, 357 Magnum, jump in their truck and follow this guy. They also called 911, but the dispatcher, and apparently these uh, tapes have now been released, seemed very surprised, like, well, what is it that he's done? Well, he looked into the window. Well, we, you know, we've had some activity. We've had robberies in the neighborhood. Uh, And they claimed they thought perhaps he was armed because a few nights earlier, they had seen him reach into his pants while he was running. God knows what that's about. Anyway, they chased him down and they uh, ordered him to stop. They were trying to make a citizen's arrest and there was a tussle. One of them jumped out. And they shot him point blank, shot him dead on the street. It is just horrifying. There is now a videotape of this. It's been released, apparently, somebody with a camera, I don't know, if it was a police camera, what it was, that has is not clear.
4: Cell phone uh, camera photograph
3: cell phone camera. Okay, so it you know, but essentially it was captured on tape. And it has taken weeks and weeks for the prosecutors in Brunswick, Georgia to decide, well maybe we ought to, you know, think about pressing charges against these folks. And so now there is going to be, they've now called for a grand jury, but of course, grand juries aren't sitting right now. Uh, But at least it's making some movement into our criminal justice system. And you might want to add more to it. But anyway, the David uh, French piece has lots of links, including to the 36 uh, uh, second video clip and other things. And it is a story that in normal times it would be getting a lot of attention.
2: Absolutely. Damon? Well, I, I've been uh, kind of maximally irritated over the last couple of weeks as I've watched uh, conversation about uh, COVID-19 and lockdowns and stay-at-home stay orders sort of uh, get uh, mapped onto our normal partisan disagreements, and even, uh, it seems to me, by many on the right uh, in the media, turned into uh, kind of assimilating it to the culture war, so that you hear arguments not, not about whether or not a certain Uh, certain uh, claims about the need for lockdowns uh, in response to the virus uh, are right or wrong, if the cost is too great for the economy, but instead in terms of, oh, those those liberal elites love to shelter in place with their Zoom meetings while the, the working class is out there dying and losing their jobs, basically trying to again, assimilate the virus to familiar kind of Trumpist narratives that I think are pretty pernicious. And it's in light of that that I want to single out a very good uh, column in the, the UK Spectator magazine by Matt Ridley titled, We Know Everything and Nothing About COVID. Uh, Its sub-headline is, it is data not modeling that we need now. Now, there's plenty in this article that I disagree with, but it is, I think, a good example of how to be a skeptic about lockdowns at this point and the need and in favor of opening up the economy uh, as quickly as possible. That's done in a responsible way that does not do what I just described, does not try to uh, turn it into yet another episode in our endless uh, culture wars that are going on in the UK as much as here. So it's, uh, it's, it's uh, a good piece and worth reading if you uh, are uh, interested in engaging with the substance of the issue.
0: I, um, I'm a big fan of Matt Ridley. I uh, can recommend two of his books, um, The Rational Optimist and The Red Queen, um, both really great, uh, worth your time. Uh Bill. Uh well, I've
4: been working lately on an issue that uh Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has moved to the fore, namely liability protections for businesses that reopen uh during you know during whatever stage of the COVID nineteen pandemic you think we're in. Uh and As you can imagine, uh, this is not a universally popular idea. Uh, I personally think there may be some merit to it if it's done right. Well, in the middle of this swirling controversy steps the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, who in a talk with a bipartisan group of legislators opined that the people in the meatpacking plants, mainly Latinos, were getting sick because of their home conditions and their culture. Uh, and the meatpacking plants had absolutely nothing to do with this. Uh, this, I confidently predict, will not be well received among the many people <laughs> who were already mistrustful of this particular push by Senator Senator. McConnell, and I can say flatly, having studied not only the policy, but also the politics of this issue, that any approach to liability shields that is predicated on the idea that workers are responsible for what's happening to them in the workplace is going to collapse for lack of a second. That is not a defensible public position. And, uh, I hope that the health human secretary has the good sense either to deny that he said that uh, or to repudiate it after he acknowledges that he said it. Because if that stands, I think that it is the nail in the coffin of McConnell's initiative.
0: Uh, and it doesn't do much to burnish the credentials of the Trump administration as the tribune of the people. Uh oh you know those dirty
3: mexicans those dirty mexicans that's what that's what i grew up with uh and i've always i've been always pleased that you know even though there's prejudice now that we've gone from blaming mexicans for being dirty to blaming them for working too hard
1: and and stealing other people's jobs so (laughs) ab what do you have the new white house press secretary uh Kaylee McEnany, who stepped into the role that Stephanie Grisham was playing, um, though for 400 days uh, that she was in the job, she never had a briefing, and is now held, I believe, two briefings in the Brady Room in the White House, the briefing room, and has done such an amazing job um, of. I know we have low um, a low threshold at this point to grade everything on a curve, but of. Uh, really after the the bungling of these briefings where the president would come and air his grievances for two hours and did such damage to his poll standing that his staff and all the Republicans begged him to stop. She has stepped into this breach um, and has really uh, conducted herself with calm and measure and, uh, and, and, and preparation. Really impressive that she comes ready uh, she's courteous with the reporters. She's uh, smiling and uh, just incredibly normal for uh, the Trump administration. She is getting so much love for this um, all across Trump world and beyond. And if you've met her, she's a lovely person. And though she likes to sort of bust the press, she's never going to be nasty, to use a word that President Trump loves, uh, in the way that I think he expects her to be, combative, combative, disrespectful on the attack with white house reporters and the way that he has been famously and he's encouraged his spokesman to be so it'll be interesting to see uh just how many more briefings she does uh and whether or not uh her visible role gets sidelined because i think the communications director at the white house who is president trump is not going to be pleased with the spotlight that she has received
0: all right, mark your calendars. That was uh, May seventh. <laughs> we will see how long she lasts. Uh, um, <clears throat> well, I just want to put in a word um, for something that the Trump administration did. We mentioned it earlier, but I, I think it deserves praise, and that is the the Betsy DeVos uh, regulations on sexual assault on campuses and the and the rules regarding that. Um, you know, she she worked on this for a long time, apparently. And, um, and these were rules that badly needed reforming. Um, the, the rules that were put in place by the Obama administration, uh, had really, uh, drastically reduced the protections for people who stood accused of serious crimes and offenses. And, uh, while they weren't risking, uh, losing their liberty they weren't going to be pris- uh, uh, criminally prosecuted still to be adjudicated to have committed sexual assault in a college on a college campus could mean a life destroying uh thing could be a life destroying thing and um and many many um male students have successfully sued universities uh, hundreds of them have um for for uh violating their rights and um And so I do think this was a necessary corrective. Um, In in some ways, it expands the protections for those who make accusations, but it also importantly uh, restores certain rights, like the right to confront witnesses against you, which campus tribunals were not providing, the right to see evidence against you. So if Joe Biden had, and this point was made Correctly, in my judgment, by Andrew Sullivan, a piece for New York Magazine, where he said, "Look, if Joe Biden had been accused by Tara Reed in a college setting, he would not have had he would not have had an opportunity to know who his accuser was, to see the evidence, or to cross examine." And uh, so, these are this is a very, very important uh, important reform. And I know Joe Biden said that he would reverse it, but maybe this experience with Tara Reid will cause him in good time to reflect that, uh, he, he may not want to do that. (laughs) All right. Thank you one and all for another episode of beg to differ. We thank our listeners and urge you to rate and review us and also make comments online via Twitter. We're always, um, eager for your feedback and, uh, we will be back next week. Thanks, AB. In particular, you were wonderful.